From 12 News, this is Newsmakers. Welcome to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics editor Ted Nisi joining us in studio for his first interview on Newsmakers since announcing his run for governor, General Treasurer Seth Magaziner. Treasurer, it's good to see you. Thanks for having me. Why do you want to be governor? I am running for governor because I want everyone in Rhode Island to be able to get a good job in Rhode Island without having to leave the state. I want everyone to be able to send their kid to a great public school in Rhode Island and have a high quality of life in Rhode Island. I just became a new father. My son Max is four weeks old and I want him to grow up in a Rhode Island where there is opportunity for everyone. We're at a critical time in this state right now. We are coming out of a time of disease and recession but we also have tremendous resources and potential to build the state back in a way that is better and stronger and more broad-based than what we've had before. And finally, I'm running for governor because I know how to get big things done in state government. As treasurer, I developed and led a state school construction program that has put 20,000 people to work repairing or replacing 180 schools. I created clean energy finance programs at the Rhode Island Infrastructure Bank that have put 2,000 people to work on windmills and solar panels and energy efficiency projects all across the state. So when it comes to meeting the challenges that we face and recognizing and realizing the opportunities that we face, I know how to get the job done and that's why I'm running for governor. Before we tick down some of the policy uh, decisions you would have to make if you became governor, you have to uh, get through the campaign. So we get some campaign questions for you. Uh, you are asking your rivals in the race for governor to adopt a people's pledge to keep outside money out of the primary. No takers yet, uh, but candidate Matt Brown shot back at you saying, and a quote here, it's pretty brazen for Magaziner to talk about the corrupting influence of money in politics when he takes tens of thousands of dollars in corporate PAC and corporate lobbyist money. How do you respond? Yeah, so I did call on everyone in the race to join a people's pledge to keep dark money out of the election. Um, Citizens United was a disastrous Supreme Court decision that has opened the floodgates uh, to dark money uh, flooding into campaigns to influence elections. Uh, this is how you know, people like the Kochs and the Sacklers and others try to buy elections. And I think that we as Democrats should uh, be honest about the fact that we are not powerless uh, to do something about dark money and its corrupting influence in we elections. We understand why we you want something the people's pledge. Yeah. He's calling you a hypocrite. Well, listen, if you know, what he's saying is that he also wants a people's pledge to include uh, a ban against fossil fuel money or whatever else, fine. I mean, that sounds good to me. My message to him and to uh, anyone else in the race is come to the table. Let's work together to come out with a people's pledge agreement that will keep out-of-state dark money out of the election, keep super PACs out of the election. And if his position is that he also wants that pledge to include uh, a ban on fossil fuel money, I more than accept that. The other pushback we heard immediately, you saw last night from, among others, Angel Tavares, who's supporting Nelly Gorbea, is about the funding of your last campaign. When you ran for treasurer in 2014, you were barely 30 years old, you'd been in school for much of your adult life, but you somehow had $700,000 on hand yeah. to loan your campaign for treasurer, and you've never repaid yourself that money, so it, it was spent on the campaign. Yeah. And your critics question how you had that money. Where did you get $700,000 at yeah. such a young age? Well, I've answered this question before. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate, it's no secret, to come from a well-off family. My parents both grew up working class. My mother in Worcester, uh, the son of a, a steel or the daughter of a steel worker. My uh, father grew up in New York, the son of a bookkeeper. And they moved to Rhode Island. They started a business here. They were successful. They built a great life for me and my siblings. 
And the fact that uh, I come from a well-off family allowed me to put personal money into my race for treasurer in 2014, just like many of my opponents have done at various stages in their political careers as well. So you acknowledge and it was a, a trust or a loan or an inheritance from your yeah, family? Yeah, it, it was largely family money. And again, this is not unusual. Uh, many of my opponents have done the same thing at different points in their political careers. But what I think voters care about is who in this race is going to deliver for their families and help their families have that same path to the American dream that mine was able to access. Who is the candidate that is going to strengthen the economy, deliver high-quality public schools, deliver economic opportunity broadly for every community in the state? And I'm running for governor to do that, and I have a track record that shows that I know how to get that you, done. You, and you don't see any saying, gap between calling for yeah. a people's pledge, saying you know about money and yeah. politics, and yet you uh, were able me, to self-fund to that degree. Yeah, let me be clear: um, if my opponents are willing to join a people's pledge agreement to keep dark money out of the race, and one of the conditions is that. Uh, we also pledge not to put personal money into this race, I will accept that. I think that it is so important that we keep people like the Sacklers, the Kochs, these out-of-state people who try to influence elections with dark money, it is so important that we keep them out that we should have a people's pledge, and if that people's pledge includes uh, no personal money going into the race, no fossil fuel money going into the race, I think that would be a good thing, and I would welcome that. I ask my opponents, come to the table so we can work on that agreement together. Has anyone gotten back to you? Not yet. We just put out the letter yesterday. I'm hopeful that they will. Former CBS executive Helena Folks has announced a run uh, for governor as well. I'm just curious if when you heard it, if that surprised you. Uh, you know, I think we always knew that this would be a competitive race, but regardless of who decides to run or, or not run, I think the thing that will set us apart, that will set our campaign apart from the rest of the field, is that I have a track record of getting big job-creating things done in state government. I mentioned the school construction program that's put 20,000 people to work already and is creating learning environments that will prepare students for the 21st century economy. The work we've done at the infrastructure bank to create clean energy jobs. Relative to anyone else in the field, I have the strongest record in state government of getting big job-creating things done. That's why I'm running for governor, and that's why I know that we are going to get the job done. One more campaign question before we go to policy stuff. Uh, did you talk to Helena folks at all this year as she was making the decision? No. All right, policy stuff, as Ted said. Um, look, from mask and vaccine mandates to re the reopening of schools, Governor McKee has had to make a lot of decisions in the pandemic. Any of those decisions you would have done differently if you were governor? Yeah, look, uh, first, I've got to give great credit to the people of Rhode Island who have stepped up and, you know, with courage and bravery, um, shown a tremendous resilience over the past two years with the pandemic. I give great credit to Dr. Alexander Scott, who I thought brought tremendous leadership to uh, uh, the state's response to the pandemic. But we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, cases are rising again. We're headed into the cold weather months. I'm very concerned about indoor sports uh, at high schools. And so I do think there are things that we should be doing and that if I were governor, I would be doing to that better protect That we're not Islanders. doing now? Yeah. So, like for what? example, I do think that there should be a vaccine requirement for teachers and school employees. I've been saying this for months. Bargaining or not bargaining? Every, every, well, sure. I mean, you work with, with um, uh, the labor groups to do that. But I will note that both of the national teachers' unions have come out in favor of vaccine mandates for teachers. Every parent in Rhode Island should have the confidence of knowing and the comfort of knowing when they send their kids to school in the morning that there are not going to be unvaccinated adults working in those school buildings with those kids. You know, other states have done this. The federal government 
has done this for federal employees. We should be doing the same thing for teachers and school employees to keep kids safe. You know, just on this topic, since you brought it up, just before walking into the studio today, our colleague Tali Taylor broke a story that the McKee administration and Rhode Island's biggest union of state workers, Council 94, uh, they have reached a tentative agreement on a new contract that includes a provision to give two $1,500 bonuses to workers who have been vaccinated against COVID-19. So that's a $3,000 bonus. How do you feel about that? Well, the actual uh, language of the deal hasn't been released yet, so I'm going to withhold judgment until I see it. But vaccines work and vaccine requirements work. I instituted a vaccine requirement for the employees in our office a couple of months ago, and it has worked. Um, of the people who were not vaccinated at the time, most of them went ahead and got the vaccine, and the few that did not have been voluntarily uh, complying with regular testing. Uh, the federal government has a vaccine requirement for federal employees. Many other states do for school. This and isn't state a mandate, employees. though. I, yeah. I know you haven't seen the wording of the contract. This yeah. is how do you feel about uh, cash bonuses for state employees to get vaccinated? Uh, I'm going to withhold judgment until I actually see the deal that you're referring to. I mean, you said it just came out a couple hours ago. Talking about yeah. mandates, I've se I have seen pushback at this from, from public health officials. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner, has mm. said, expressed concern that um, putting mandates in place is further politi politicizing vaccinations and in some cases not getting that last, let's say, 10% of a certain workforce to get vaccinated mm. and just adding to the polarization around COVID. Do you have any concern that, you know, a mandate for teachers, maybe a mandate for state workers would just further create what we're already seeing around the health system in Eleanor Slater. Yeah, but that hasn't happened in other places that have done it, right? You know, in other states that have had vaccine requirements for teachers and school employees, for example, there has not been an exodus of people leaving employment at those schools for the most part. Um, in our office, you know, our experience in the treasurer's office, that did not occur. And so I think something like what the federal government has done, where it is a vaccine or test requirement, uh, makes a lot of sense. It has not led to an exodus of people. Um, by and large, these requirements work. And I do think, again, that, you know, for that parent putting their kid on the school bus in the morning, uh, that parent deserves to know that that kid's teacher has had a vaccine. Let's talk about the economic side of COVID. This morning's Rhode Island jobs report showed the unemployment rate ticked up in October, even as the rate went down nationally. Now, I've covered these a long time. They can be noisy, so I don't read yeah. too much into that. But we are also hearing from businesses that are struggling to find workers, even as we see a little uptick in the unemployment rate. If you were governor, what concrete steps would you take right now that you think would help with the unemployment rate as well as the worker shortage? Yeah, I'd say a couple of things. First, the worker shortage in healthcare settings is is an immediate crisis. And uh, I imagine one of the things you're going to want to talk about is uh, how Rhode Island should be using stimulus funding. I think one of the ways that we should be using it in the near term is to address the worker shortage in healthcare settings. Hospitals, nursing homes, group homes, uh, it's become dangerous. Like retention become, bonuses, you mean? Yeah, or retention bonuses, you know, maybe student loan forgiveness uh, to help retain the workers who are there. Uh, but then also uh, we need to make it as easy as possible financially for new people to enter the profession and get the training that they need to get credentialed and to get placed. Uh, so that is a near-term crisis that I think should be met uh, to the best of our ability with uh, federal resources. Um, more broadly, uh, you know, I think what you're seeing is a mismatch between the uh, jobs that employers have open and the skills that workers have in many industries. So last month I put out an education and workforce plan that included big new investments in career and technical programs at the high school level, apprenticeship programs and workforce programs 
uh, that don't require a four-year degree or anything like that, but can lead to good, stable career paths. I think one way that we as a state government can help address the worker shortage is that making sure that uh, all Rhode Islanders who want to get you know, those credentials, those training uh, opportunities, have access to it so that they can get the skills that they need for the jobs that are open. Just one quick follow-up on federal stimulus funds. The, the General Assembly still hasn't appropriated any of the $1.1 yeah. from the federal stimulus funds. The governor's frustrated. Some advocates are frustrated. Do you think they should take action before the end of the year? Well, I think the time has come to use some federal stimulus funding to address uh, staffing shortages in healthcare settings because that is a near-term crisis, and it's a crisis that is a result of the pandemic. I mean, most of the job loss in those healthcare settings uh, is because people have been burnt out, right? Um, people have been burnt out. They've been leaving the profession as a result. And so I would like to see uh, some stimulus funding put toward that quickly. Um, and then beyond that, uh, we should use the remainder of what's left um, to build the uh, foundation for a stronger economic recovery for Rhode Island. So, you know, to me that means more funding for things like workforce training. I like the ideas that the Rhode Island Foundation put forward around more funding for affordable housing. Um, but certainly to meet the near-term crisis of staffing in healthcare settings, yes, we should move quickly because it is a crisis right now. We're going to take a break on Newsmakers. When we come back, our conversation with gubernatorial candidate Seth Magaziner, also general treasurer for the state of Rhode Island. Uh, we're going to talk about education in the state of Providence School. Stay with us here watching Newsmakers. Welcome back to Newsmakers. I'm Tim White alongside 12 News Politics editor Ted Nisi. Our guest this week is candidate for governor, Rhode Island General Treasurer Seth Magaziner. Uh, I want to talk about education. Look, depending on what happens in the next year and a half, if you become elected governor, you will also inherit again, potentially the uh, Providence public school system. What is your assessment of the state takeover of the Providence schools? Should it end or continue? Well, it should continue until there's been real change. Um, you know, every child in Rhode Island deserves to go to a great school, regardless of what city they live in, regardless of zip code. And when I talk to stakeholders in the Providence school system, uh, parents, students, teachers, uh, nobody's satisfied with the status quo. You know, everybody wants change. And again, I put out an education platform last month that uh, includes the things that I think should be priorities for education in Providence and more broadly. It includes things like universal preschool, a major investment in support for students who are English language learners, which is a huge issue in Providence, uh, significant investment in career technical education, college affordability, supporting and uh, recruiting and supporting a more diverse teacher corps. Uh, these are the things that, as governor, I will prioritize. And yes, eventually we will return control of the Providence School District back to the city. But uh, there needs to be real change first. Uh, that's what everybody is calling for. Mayor Jorge Alorza, who's had a front row seat to all of this, has been pretty critical of the teachers' union contract, saying that it has really hampered the ability for school administrators to move on from teachers who are not effective. And there should be more flexibility in the teachers' contract. What do you say? Yeah, I think that we need to, uh, you know, take a hard look at what changes need to be made going forward. Um, you know, I think we need to support principals. I think we also need to support educators. I am a former public school teacher, and we need to make sure that uh, we are recruiting and providing support, you know, particularly to newer teachers who are entering the profession. Um, look, at the end of the day, uh, nobody is satisfied with the status quo in Providence. Uh, we cannot be satisfied with it because every student in Rhode Island, including in Providence, 
deserves a high-quality education. Do you support Education Commissioner Angelica Infante Green's contract renewal? One thing that I am not going to do is make any commitments about uh, who I will hire, not hire, keep, not keep in a cabinet-level role when I am governor. I think that all of the cabinet-level officials now deserve the space to do their jobs the best they can. I'm going to choose an education commissioner that will put students first and that will work relentlessly to improve public education all across the state, uh, but I'm not going to make commitments about individuals. We, we, hear, we hear that answer a lot yeah. from candidates, but uh, this is happening now, yeah. uh, Treasurer. So do you, do you support? Well, my understanding is it's, it's happened. I yeah. Mean, uh, the board's Whether it's been signed it. yeah. on the dotted yeah, yeah, line yeah. or not. So, so. so look, I mean, uh, she has a new three-year contract, and, you know, I hope that she uh, is able to uh, get the support she needs, deliver, do a good job for Providence students over the next three years, and Rhode Island students generally over the next three years. Uh, then when I get in, um, you know, we'll take a look. Uh, you've been talking a lot about the plans you've put out so far in your campaign, and one of them is a plan that would move, you want to move the state to 100% renewable energy by the end of this decade. Obviously, climate change is a huge concern. I think most people understand the motivation for that. But on the other hand, Rhode Islanders already pay some of the highest energy rates in the country. We know how, pe how worried people are this yeah. winter about gas prices, natural gas, oil, etc. What do you say to residents who might say, I'd love to have all renewable energy, but I'm scared of what my bill will be at the end of a Seth Magazine or decade if he's gone to all renewables. Well, the transition to 100% renewable uh, will help protect ratepayers from the volatility of the fossil fuel markets, right? The volatility of gas prices, of oil prices. Um, I think that ratepayers want affordability. They also want predictability. And there is a path to get Rhode Island to 100% renewable electricity by 2030, putting lots of people to work and good jobs in the process. We can do it by investing in offshore wind. We can do it uh, by investing in responsibly sited solar. So solar power that is uh, on brownfields and rooftops, not green spaces. And uh, another part of the infrastructure plan that I put out last week uh, is um, that I think we need a comprehensive uh, policy to make utilities more affordable uh, for working and lower income Rhode Islanders. You know, utilities, um, uh, generally speaking, don't raise money in a progressive fashion. Um, you know, people who live in $5 million houses pay the same rate on their electric bill as people who live in, you know, $200,000 houses, $250,000 houses. And so looking at more progressive rate structures for utilities, I think, is also a way that we help make this transition affordable. I remember you talking about that with the Narragansett Bay Commission a couple yeah. of years ago. I did some reporting on that. But I also remember pushback about whether it would even be legal to differentiate rates by income in utilities. Do you think that is doable? Well, one of the uh, uh, you know, responsibilities of a governor is to work with the General Assembly to pass laws uh, to benefit Rhode Islanders. So that's what we'll do. Um, Following several high-profile police abuse of power cases, there were calls to defund the police. Um, assuming, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, you don't want to shutter police departments across the state of Rhode Island, do you support diverting funding from police departments to fund social response programs? So I do not support defunding the police. I'm a believer in community policing. I think policing works best when there are strong relationships and strong connectivity uh, between police departments and the neighborhoods that they serve. And, um, you know, it's not either or, it's both and, right? We can have community policing that works, that's effective, that guarantees safe communities for all Rhode Islanders, but at the same time uh, support, uh, uh, you know, 
more services to help uh, you know, rehabilitate people coming out of the ACI. We can support uh, more uh, counseling services for those who need it. It's not either or, it's both and. First, do you, uh, question of marijuana here. Do you, do you support the legalization of recreation, recreational marijuana? Yes. Okay. How do you think it should be structured? Rhode Island is dealing with that right now. Yeah, so here's what I'm going to be looking for. Um, I do think that the time has come to legalize recreational marijuana in Rhode Island, as Massachusetts and Connecticut have done. It doesn't make sense for us to be tripping people up in the criminal justice system for marijuana-related offenses. Um, what I'm going to be looking for is I want to make sure that we do this in a way where it is not just people with connections to the state house who benefit from the resulting business opportunities, right? I do not want this to be a throwback to the old way of doing things at the state house where people who have relationships at the state house, people who have an in, are the ones who are able to cash out. I want to do this in as democratic a way as possible where, you know, any Rhode Islander who, you know, wants to be an entrepreneur, who is willing to work hard for it, has a chance to participate. And so, I know that there are competing versions right now of legislation uh, for how uh, legalized recreational marijuana would be structured in Rhode Island. I would favor an approach that is as open as possible, um, well-regulated, but open, so that it's not just the insiders who benefit. Let's talk about your current job uh, for a minute as general treasurer in the state pension fund. Your office just this morning, as we're taping on Thursday, put out a release saying the pension fund is at an all-time high of $10.64 billion, but you also have to look at the liability side to see how the pension system is doing. When you took office, there was a projection that as of 2020, the state workers' pension would be nearly 57% funded. The shortfall would be about $2 billion. And the most recent actuarial report shows it was only about 54% funded, and the shortfall was about $200 million worse than they'd yeah. thought. Why did the pension system fall a little short of what they were hoping for the day you came in? We've talked about this before. It's because uh, we made the decision, the tough but right decision, to adopt new accounting assumptions for the pension system that presented a more accurate picture of the health of the system. So when I took office, uh, the state was assuming a higher investment rate of return for the pension, uh, other actuarial assumptions that, frankly, made the pension system look healthier than it actually was before I took office. We made the decision to adopt more accurate uh, accounting assumptions to present a more accurate picture of the health of the pension plan and it's working. You know, the last few years, the unfunded liability has come down every year. The funded status of the pension has gone up. And under our Back to Basics investment plan that I enacted five years ago, we have consistently outperformed our peers. So not only are we at an all-time high of more than $10.6 billion, but we have outperformed a majority of other public pension plans uh, three out of the last four years in investment performance. We are outperforming. So you are still confident there'll be significant improvement in the actual funded status yep. in the coming decade? The, the actuaries tell us that we are on pace uh, to reach uh, a healthy 80% funding level uh, on the same timeline that we were when I took office. You served on the board of Common Cause Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. um, the, that organization has long opposed how magistrate judges are selected, a process that is criticized for being patronage. Do you support changing the magistrate selection process so the governor chooses those judges? I think that there should be a system where there are appropriate checks and balances. Uh, so I agree what does with, that mean? Yeah, so it means I agree with common cause that the current system is not a good one, and there should be a system that is more merit-based. Merit so, you know, what I would do is I would bring together uh, uh, leaders from good government groups like common cause, from the judiciary, 
and uh, we would work together to develop a new system for selecting magistrates. Because I, I agree with Common Cause, it's it's not a good system right now. Big topic in the news this week is the hospital merger, lifespan mm -hmm. care in New England. Do you support or oppose it? Uh, I support it with guardrails. And let me just take a step back because this is maybe the biggest question that you know the next governor is going to face. Um, there are benefits to a unified health care system. The benefits include ensuring that health services stay here in Rhode Island instead of going out of state, ensuring that it is not some out-of-state for-profit uh, shady player that comes in to merge with one of our hospital systems again here in Rhode Island. Uh, there's also, I think, great benefit in terms of coordination of care and uh, protect, uh, potential economic development benefit too from more research dollars flowing into the state as part of a unified integrated healthcare system. But of course, when you create an entity that controls 80% of the hospital beds, when you create a virtual monopoly, there are risks associated with cost, right, and with provision of care. So my position is this, if we are going to move forward with this and create a virtual monopoly, then we have to regulate it like a monopoly. I would uh, support moving forward, but only if we put forward a new regulatory structure over the unified hospital system that would have the power to, among other things, uh, control costs and pricing uh, and mandate that a certain level of care be provided uh, in different geographies across the state. So yes, I think the benefits outweigh the risks, but only if there is robust regulation associated with it. All right, uh, Treasurer, real quick, uh, split ticket in Rhode Island, but some are kind of saddling up with a running mate. We have 15 seconds. Are you going to have a pseudo running mate? For That's not my plan, no. Okay, you're going to yeah. run solo. Uh, you said at the top of the show, just a big congratulations yeah. to you and Julia for the birth of your son, Max. My advice, don't blink. It happens really <laughs> fast. Thank General you. Treasurer Seth Magaziner, thanks for joining us. For Ted Nisi, I'm Tim White. We'll see you next week on News Meetings.